awesome you guys are, and that's been my experience so far. So thank you for being so opening and welcoming to me here this morning. In the summer of 2014, I accepted an internship in Atlanta, Texas. Now, if you've never heard of Atlanta, Texas, you're not alone, neither have I. Uh, in fact, if you want to get there, all you have to do is get on 59 and keep driving for about five hours when it turns north towards Arkansas. That turn is Atlanta. <laughs> uh, it's a town of about 5,000 people uh, deep in the piney woods of East Texas. Um, the first night I was there, I knew no one and was kind of uncomfortable, so I had dinner with some friends. I was coming back at around 10 p.m. at night. Um, my Google Maps was lagging, because if you couldn't tell, Atlanta's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and I had no idea where I was going, so I slowed way down to allow my GPS to catch up so I could get home. Uh, it was then that I was pulled over. I saw the little lights flashing. I had never been pulled over before, so I was nervous and scared. Um, the cop came up and asked me a couple questions. I wasn't super positive, and uh, he asked if I was special, and then walked to my car and opened the door and started to look through it. Uh, so I've never been pulled over before, but I knew what he was doing was wrong. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm gonna need you to shut my door and get out of my car. Uh, he didn't take Real kindly to that, nonetheless, he shut the door and walked towards me. We had a little bit more of a discussion and then he let me go. Uh, I never thought about that incident again until almost exactly one year later. Uh, a woman in Waller County had changed lanes without using a turn signal and she was pulled over, much like I was. Um, the cop that pulled her over really didn't work out inside the bounds of what he was supposed to, much like my cop. Uh, and she, much like I did, let him know that she knew what he was doing was wrong. Uh, the only difference in those two stories really is the outcome. Uh, in the dead of night, I was allowed to go home. Uh, in broad daylight, Sandra Bland was dragged to jail and three days later was found dead in her cell. Uh, if you would, please pray with me. Uh, Spirit of the living God, please fall afresh on us. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love of you. Amen. Amen. The news of Sandra Bland's arrest and death caused me to confront a lot of things that don't get talked about very often. Mostly because people don't want to talk about them. Sandra Bland caused me to view the world from a perspective that wasn't my own. To talk about and to learn things that make me uncomfortable. Uh, homicide is the fourth leading cause of death for African Americans, and it's the fifth for Latinos. The median household income for white families is $161,000. For Latino families, it's $18,000. For African Americans, it's $16,000. Over the course of this year, 640,000 LGBT youth will become homeless, and half of all trans kids will attempt suicide at some point in their life. These are all things that do and should make us uncomfortable. So what do we do with that? And what does that have to do with our scripture lesson this morning? Uh, well, when I was preparing to write this sermon a couple weeks ago, I looked at the lectionary readings for this Sunday. And to be honest, I didn't want to preach on any of them. None of them really set me on fire. So I did what I did do best, and I asked people for help. 
and I was trying to get ideas, and one of them said, well, your lectionary reading is from Matthew 15. Uh, that's where Jesus uses a racial slur. You should preach on that. I have real friends. And so I decided to go ahead and look at it. So the next day, I started to do some research to dig a little deeper into the text, and I ran into something interesting. No theologian I read or respect really spent any time on this verse. Uh, towards the end of the day, it got to be a little comical that any time I saw Matthew 15 mentioned, they would talk about the event right before and the event right after, and 20 through 28 didn't exist. And it occurred to me that they probably didn't want to talk about it because it made them uncomfortable. Almost as if they didn't want to talk about what Jesus says here. So, what do we do with that? Uh, well, I come from a long line of people that don't like talking about things. And as a result, I enjoy talking about things that will make other people uncomfortable. Uh, in fact, it's my own personal belief that if there's any place to talk about things that make us uncomfortable, it should be church. So let's talk about it. So before Jesus comes across the Canaanite woman, Jesus had just heard about the death of his cousin and friend, St. John the Baptist. Later that evening, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and as they leave the crowd and board a boat, that's where our scripture lesson from last week came from, with Jesus walking on water and calling Peter out of the boat. Once they reach the shore, Jesus speaks about what corrupts us. He says, what comes out of the mouth gets its start in the heart. It is from the heart that we speak evil arguments, murder, and lies. That is what corrupts. So, so far, it's the Jesus that we're familiar with. The healing, feeding, and speaking harsh truths Jesus. The Jesus that we're all familiar with from Sunday school. And then we meet the Canaanite woman. To give a bit of history, the Israelites and the Canaanites had been fighting ever since Israel was a nation. Canaan and the Canaanites are mentioned 160 times in the Hebrew Bible, and none of it is positive. In fact, one of the commandments set down by God in the Torah was that the occupants of all six Canaanite nations were not to be allowed to live. So the hatred, the contempt, and the vitriol ran deep for this community. Perhaps that's why when the Canaanite woman comes up to Jesus the first time, she's ignored. It isn't until the disciples are tired of her shouting that they decide to intervene. Not on her behalf, but because they're annoyed. When Jesus finally does speak, it's really spoken more so to the disciples. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Essentially saying, I'm here for the Jews, and we all know she's not Jewish. Upon hearing this, she hits her knees and prays one of the simplest, most heartfelt prayers. Help me. And Jesus says, it's not fair to take the children's food, meaning the children of Israel, the Jews, and throw it to the dogs. Even to our modern ears, that is offensive. To call someone a dog is meant to strip them of their humanity. And when Jesus uses the phrase, it's even worse. Because while he is saying dog, in the time of Jesus, it, this word means something more. It's a racial slur meant to delegitimize, dehumanize, and destroy people. Uh, recent studies have found that empathy is the ability of uh, empathy, the ability to share feelings with another person, is hardwired into our brain. 
the nerve that triggers your fight or flight instinct is right next to the nerve that triggers em empathy. It's like our body is saying that empathy is just as necessary to our survival as fight or flight. That lurch in the pit of your stomach when you see someone hurt, that tightness in your chest when something shocks you, that brokenhearted feeling you get when you see examples of hatred like we saw last week. Those are all examples of empathy. So here we have someone that the church teaches is both fully divine and fully human, showing no signs of divinity or humanity. And what do we do with that? The way I see it, we can look at it in one of two ways. One, we can see it as a confirmation of every negative, nasty, hurtful thing we've ever thought of Christians. We can say, see, even Jesus was a bigot who spread hate speech. Sure, he heals the woman, but he mocks her first. Or we can dare to think that perhaps Jesus is doing something more here. That was his specialty, was to always confuse and confound. Perhaps the Jesus who made a Samaritan the hero in a parable, who ate with sinners, who lifted up the most rejected in society as the highest value in the kingdom of God, had a message larger than hate. You see, I think Jesus starts off with treating the Canaanite woman this way because he knows what people are capable of. Jesus grew up in a small town. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from the Bible is when someone hears that Jesus is from Nazareth and they ask the question, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus grew up and was exposed to this kind of bigotry. I myself was raised in a small town where I heard the N-word on a fairly regular basis, and it wasn't until I grew up that I learned that it's not a polite word. Uh, it's a word meant to denigrate, and its history of hatred is long and painful and still ever-present. No one is born racist or homophobic or prejudiced. It's all learned. We can see that in the action of the disciples. These men have been walking with Jesus, listening to his preaching and watching him perform miracles, yet they still harbor that ancient hatred. They, like so many of us, let that go unchecked unless they are forced to confront a human face of their hatred, or unless Jesus calls them out individually. Let us not forget the role that the Canaanite woman plays in this story. As someone who has been blessed with many strong women in my life, the Canaanite woman holds a special place in my heart. She is never named like so many other women in the Bible, and she is traveling without a male escort, something that was scandalous in the time of Jesus. But when she is insulted by Jesus, by this man she sought out to help her, she doesn't bow her head and walk away. She picks up that insult off the ground and throws it right back. Here she is, on her knees, asking for help but she will not allow herself to be denigrated. Their conversation says to the disciples exactly what it says to us today. Yes, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, but he was and is and will continue to be so much more. She says to Jesus, you came here for Israel, but no son of God gets to come to earth and help a privileged few. You may be part of one ethnicity, but no God I believe in or want to believe in would send someone to not care for all of God's creation. And Jesus agrees. Jesus shows that the doors are thrown open wide, and that all are welcome, all are invited in, and all will feast at his heavenly banquet like we will here in a couple of minutes. 
If Charlottesville and Ferguson, Matthew Shepard, Philando Castile, Mother Emmanuel, AME Church, and the Pulse Nightclub have taught me anything, it's that sometimes we are the Canaanite woman, the one who asks for help, who points to the injustice in the world and pleads to be noticed. The ones who, once the world notices, say, now that you've noticed, now that you see what's going on, now that you are woke, uh, you can't ignore what you see now. So get busy, because this mess isn't going to heal itself. We are, as Christians, always called to be like Christ. To walk in love and grace and truth, shine lights on the forgotten spaces, and working towards peace and reconciliation. Theodore Parker once said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I agree with that. I just believe that it doesn't bend alone. Ever since the time of Cain and Abel, the power of human hatred has been able to hurt, maim, and kill. And what do we do with that? I'm not sure, but I can tell you one thing. If the church today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as irrelevant. That quote was from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. He found a prescription for fighting intolerance and hatred, and I think he was right. That same prescription is found in our communion liturgy that we're about to sing. The liturgy quotes Jesus by saying, And God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That anointing didn't go away when Christ ascended into heaven. It just became our anointing. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, taught that going to church and getting into heaven is not the only goal of the church. We are to seek a renewal of our souls after the image of God in righteousness, in justice, mercy, and truth. So what do we do with that? Bigotry and prejudice has always existed, and we must greet it the same way that Jesus and the Canaanite woman did, with a spirit of hope and healing, and one that says, now that you've noticed, let's get to work. So if you would, please pray with me. Creator God, you made us in your own image and redeemed us through Jesus Christ. Look with compassion on the whole human family. Take away the arrogance and hatred that infects our hearts. Break down the walls that separate us. Unite us in bonds of love and work through our struggle and confusion to accomplish your purposes on earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.